0: So are you a Platinum Christian, or are you on the basic level? You know, we have so many products and services these days that uh, you sign up to that has levels. You can get the basic cell phone plan, or you can get the premium one with all sorts of minutes and data. You can get the basic cable, or you can get the one with 4,000 channels in... 4K HD, whatever that means. You can get a gym membership that's of the basic level or you can get a personal trainer that will work with you to make you an elite athlete. It's so common and so tempting to think that, well, maybe Christianity works this way. You know, I'm not sure that I want to be on the radical end of things. You know, maybe I'll just start out with the, you know, Christmas and Easter plan and move up from there. Maybe if I become a regular attender, I can determine then if I want to go in a little bit further. But even more than that, the question comes at those crossroads. Do I really want to follow Christ when it means sacrifice? Does the pain that can come by being a Christian of any type of giving up things of this world or, or feeling opposition or going against the flow? Is it really necessary? Or can I just become a run-of-the-mill Christian, an average one, a generic one that doesn't need it to be so painful? We come to a passage that's filled with raw emotion. David wants at this moment to find the gentle option. But he's left in deep anguish. It seems as though for him the cost is too steep. Does it have to be this way? Is there an easier path? This is a hard passage, and it's a hard one to even to listen to as we witness David's anguish. But In it, really, we find the good news of the gospel. So let's turn and ask God to bless our understanding of his word. Will you join me? Father, we come to this passage knowing on the one hand that you promise it is good, but also hearing it and hearing things that are just so sad. I pray, Lord, that you will lead us to see the truth in it, lead us to see how it applies to our lives and not just what happened 3,000 years ago. And Father, use it to bless us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at the start of chapter 18 in 2 Samuel, we are on the cusp of a civil war. David's son, Absalom, has been leading a revolution against his father. Absalom is perhaps the model of a leader. We're told that he is tall and handsome chapter 14 says that he has long luxurious hair he is the kind of guy that you look to as a leader and he has gained popularity among the people so much so that people have rallied around him and they are now calling the followers of absalom the men of israel All this popularity and good looks and, and uh, vi- you know, uh, image of being the perfect king, well, if you've been following along in the books of Samuel, you know that that actually is a bad sign. That, in fact, that's what the world looks to for a leader. Israel should look deeper than that. Absalom's motivation seems completely secular. He seems to not appeal to God at all. When it comes to uh, arising to the throne, he doesn't wait for a prophet or a priest to anoint him with oil. He takes the crown upon his own head. It seems as though he's deeply motivated by bitterness towards his father and jealousy for the throne. Now up to this point, David's been trying to avoid a conflict. He not only doesn't want bloodshed in the In the nation of Israel, he doesn't want Israel against Israel. But he also doesn't want to fight his son. And so he flees. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves the promised land. He crosses the Jordan and gets to the other side. But Absalom is still on his heels, follows him. And he comes to the point of realization that he must go to battle. On the surface, it can appear like it's Two great armies, the army of Absalom, called the sons of Israel at the time. And then the army of David, the people who are servants of David. But in reality, it really is just about two individuals, Absalom and David. And whoever is standing at the end of this conflict is going to be the winner. David's men know this. In verse 3, they insist, David, do not go out to battle. You alone are worth more than 10,000 people. Absalom doesn't have a group telling him the same thing. He goes out into the battlefield. Thousands of men will fight, but it comes down to these two. In fact, the narrative makes this clear. That really, the point of this story isn't so much the battle. We have had three long chapters leading up to this battle in anticipation, and the battle itself is only described in three verses, verses 6 through 8. It is almost passed over for a greater story. David's men force the much larger army of Absalom into the forest. It is the way that they could gain an advantage over them. It is much harder to maneuver a large uh, force in the forest. And the strategy pays off, but it doesn't pay off the way that David might think. It pays off in a rather hilarious way. Absalom, handsome Absalom, confidently rides his mule. Now, you're not supposed to ride a mule into battle. That's what you do When you win the victory, you ride out in the donkey as one who has had the victory. But uh, Absalom, so confident, rides his mule into battle and into the forest. And uh, it seems almost immediately as Absalom engages, his trademark long, beautiful hair gets caught in a tree. And there he is, dangling, His mule has now taken off, and he is hanging between, as it says, heaven and earth. Absalom is put on a platter for David and his men. And one of David's men sees Absalom just hanging there. And he knows that he could finish the whole war with just one blow. But the problem is, when David sent his troops out, He gave only one command. And all of Israel, all the troops heard this same command. Verse 5, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And so this witness doesn't know what to do. He runs to Joab, the chief general, the one who had been the top general in David's army. And he says, what should I do? Absalom's there, caught in a tree. For Joab, it wasn't so much a problem. (laughs) Joab, uh, throughout the book of uh, 2 Samuel in particular, was a shoot-first, ask-questions-later kind of guy. Violence for Joab was always the answer. And so he has no moral conflict here. He disregards the king's message. And he takes ten men out with him. Ten probably so that there's no blame of one person particularly Joab, and he has them all strike, Absalom, dead. You cut off the head of the serpent, and the snake dies. The war is over. Israel, which was the followers of Absalom, they all flee at this time. They go back to their homes. But the battle was not the point. You see, if we're reading this through, the narrator almost rushes through the battle and the conflict, but spends a lot of time on the two bookends. We're told a lot of detail about the prevention, David's concern, do not harm Absalom, deal gently with him. And then it comes almost to a crawl in describing David's response. As one uh, biblical historian has noted, Absalom, uh, if if this was merely a history, uh, the author would have been far more concise. He would have said something like, Absalom died and David went into deep mourning. And that would have been sufficient. But the narrator spends 20 times longer than that, describing things. We are made to feel David's fear of what could happen if Absalom is injured in the battle. And then we're made to to feel the extreme anguish of what does happen as David's fear becomes realized. And we can't turn away from those cries. David, upon hearing the death of his son, says, oh, My son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So why are we made to focus on this? What's the point of this narrative? Now, some of you may think, well, that's not not a big deal to spend a lot of time on David's emotions here. He just lost his son. We'd expect to see his grief. We'd expect to see it be profound. And in fact, if we know David through the Psalms, we know that David was one who wore his heart on the sleeve. And we get to see bare emotion from David again and again. Perhaps we're reminded of another father who lost his son at the beginning of 1 Samuel. There are lots of resonances with Eli, And when Eli finds out his two boys die in battle, he is so grieved that he falls over backwards in his chair and dies. And the epitaph there stated through his daughter-in-law was, Ichabod, the glory of God, has departed. Is that what's going on here? Has God's glory departed? It must have been a moment of deep regret. What could have been, not only for Absalom, who died at a young age, what could have been further in his life that was cut short? But but what could David have done differently to prevent this? Could David have gone to war? Could David have been there and interceded with Joab? Could David himself have died rather than his son? And most of us can be moved by David's mourning. We can empathize with his deep sadness. But that's not the reason why we slow down here. We see it in what can, for us, become a very jarring incident. You see, in the middle of David's grief, he's confronted with a rebuke by Joab. And insensitive though he may be, Joab here is exposing something wrong in David's anguish. David needs to be confronted because there's something toxic going on that needs to be exposed. So let's look at at Joab's rebuke. What is he uncovering here in David's heart? Well, first, Joab's rebuke exposes that David doesn't see the real danger in his son Absalom. He doesn't see the threat. Now, for Joab, the issue is cut and dried, probably too cut and dry. He sees the actions of David, and they're baffling to him. Verse 6, Joab says to David, you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. David's love for Absalom was so great he seeks to protect him even though Absalom is the one who instigated this war. He wants his soldiers to spare Absalom's life. He becomes inconsolable. Even though Absalom didn't merit any of this love, David showed it to him. Absalom would have killed David in a drop of a hat, but here, Joab sees David's compassion, and he's furious How can you show such love to such an enemy? Now, you might be thinking at this time, is that a fair rebuke? I mean, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Isn't that precisely what Jesus teaches us? Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Isn't David just doing here what Jesus has commanded? Although a thousand years earlier. And isn't he doing what is his M.O.? He deals gently with his enemies. We saw in the last chapter, Shimei casting rocks at him and insults. And David does not kill him. We've seen his interactions with Saul again and again. King Saul when David was a younger man pursuing David intent on killing him and at least two times David withheld his hand when it was an opportunity for him to kill him but this case is different sparing Absalom was not the same it's different because in this instance David is not acting on his own these weren't Personal attacks. If we really get down to what Absalom is doing, these are attacks on God's people. To deal, to deal gently with Absalom was to prolong the battle. To deal gently with Absalom meant more people would have to die in the battle. Once Joab kills Absalom, it's all over. Perhaps thousands of people are spared. But more to the point, David wasn't just a private individual. David was the king. He was the anointed one of God's nation. And in fact, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God ties his redemptive promises to that kingdom, to David and his throne. Absalom wasn't just a personal enemy. Absalom wasn't just insulting and attacking David. Absalom was going to war with God's Messiah. He was attacking the very core of God's redemptive plan. So Absalom wasn't just David's enemy in this rebellion. Absalom was the Antichrist. Now I say that, and even as I say it, in my mind it conjures up all cartoonish images that we hear in popular culture something out of a cheesy action movie or something of what the antichrist is but i think it's an important category that we sometimes get we sometimes lose absalom wasn't just making life hard for david absalom was intent on replacing god's messiah he was intent on replacing the kingdom of God with his own secular kingdom. What benefit do we have in understanding the Antichrist, or as John says, many Antichrists? What's the point in it? Well, the name should guide us. It's Antichrist. It's not anti-kevin. It's not anti-American. You know, these aren't personal attacks that come at us that we are told by Jesus to forgive. These aren't people who profess a political ideology that's different from me. Or perhaps even a political, or or a moral uh, perspective that's different from us. There are lots of people who we are going to disagree with. There are lots of people who we disagree with passionately. Even to the Extent of disagreeing with them about religion. And yet we're told time and time again we're to love these people. We're to love those who persecute us. It isn't anti truth or even, dare I say, anti Christianity. We can face opposition. The church has faced opposition for 2,000 years. People that persecute. But Christ tells us to love our enemies. Pray for those who, what? Persecute us. No, an antichrist is not someone who opposes or challenges us, but someone who opposes, challenges the work of Christ. One who undermines the message. One who comes from us and seeks to unseat Christ. Here, Absalom stood opposed to the very gospel. He put it at risk. He didn't only put David's troops at risk. He puts the entire message at risk because God tied all the promises of redemption into David and his throne and his heir who would come. You know, if Absalom wins, Israel is no longer the Old Testament church. If Absalom wins, Israel is destroyed. They're no longer a special people. They become just like the other nations. If Absalom wins, they can't hope in someone beyond themselves. Their hope is just in their own power. David does indeed want to win this spiritual battle. He wants God's kingdom to succeed. He wants to have victory here. But he doesn't want to lose Absalom. We need to see how nearsighted this is. If Absalom survives, Absalom was not going to change his mind. If they capture Absalom and deal gently with him and don't kill him, there will come a day when David will die and Absalom, his son, will have a right to the throne. Absalom was a cancer, and he had to be dealt with. As one writer put it, David here is like a patient, ready to undergo cancer surgery, who pleads with the doctor, deal gently with my cancer. Get most of it, but definitely leave a tad. You know, don't cut too deep. The cancer you know is a part of me. I don't want to lose it. Anyone who has battled cancer or knows someone who has battled cancer knows that that is a losing strategy. You must eradicate all of it. You cannot play nice with it. It will come back and destroy David is blind to the seriousness of the threat, the extent of the response that's needed here. Man, the question that he is facing here as he heads off into battle is the one we face. Do we see threats around us? Are we willing to cut deep to get rid of danger? David's command to go easy on Absalom wasn't admirable love of enemy. It comes dangerously close to aiding and abetting the enemy. What are things that we cling on to? Things that you might say, well, you know, I know that that's bad, but, you know, what I really want is to control it. I want to just get it under my control so I can manage it better. Don't kill it. Soften it. Don't remove it. We can rationalize. We can minimize its danger. It can be pet sins. It can be aspirations that we're holding on to. It can be the love of the opinions of others. It can be anything that is standing in the way of giving our Devotion to Christ. When these, even when they're good things, become ultimate things, they can fester and turn into a threat. Yes, it may appear at this moment like a small wedge, but when not dealt with, it increasingly expands into a rift between you and God. Yes, Jesus' words are love our enemies. But we are called to go to war against the enemies of the gospel. Make no mistake about it. There is a difference between defending yourself and being on, defending your side. Those things I think we need to lay down from what Jesus has told us. But we must defend the gospel. Do we seek to defend it? And I mean that not just simply in the marketplace of ideas. Yes, we need to defend the gospel out there. We need to stand up for the gospel when it's being compromised or when it's being besmirched by the people around us. We need to be able to defend it, yes. But we need to defend it in our hearts as well. We need to defend it against those things that have influence over us and superiority over us. You know, sometimes we just scoff at those we like to categorize as fundamentalist Christians. You know, those Christians who see threats in everything around them? Now, it's right. They make taboos in things they shouldn't make taboos over. And we do have certain freedoms that they call off-limits, whether that be alcohol, wealth, music, culture. All those things we have grown sophisticated to understand are actually okay, And we laugh at fundamentalists who tell us you need to avoid them. And yet sometimes, in our overcorrection, we fail to see the threat that has crept into our hearts. When we say everything is permissible, do we understand that there could be a danger that is lurking in those things that we have allowed ourselves to partake in. Good things, when they become ultimate things, become destructive things. Once the love of something takes root, when we fail to see it as a rival to the gospel, we have very subtly allied ourselves with the Antichrist. Calling Absalom Antichrist is not a stretch here, especially if we listen closely to the narrative. Go back and read the battle that was fought in between the sections that we skipped over. It's interesting here that God leaves no doubt about his opinion of Absalom. David doesn't deal with Absalom, but God certainly does. Absalom wasn't struck down in battle. Absalom wasn't captured by some skilled warrior, and then they made a decision, should we kill him or not. No, his death seemed utterly passive. What uh, biblical scholars sometimes call the divine passive, that when narratives are stated in the passive, you can almost assume at that time that it's God doing the action. It wasn't bad luck that Absalom gets caught. It's not coincidence. It's God who ensnares him. And we shouldn't miss the symbolism of how he's ensnared. He's hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is anyone hanged on a tree. And his body then is taken and thrown into a pit of large stones. Stones were used as capital punishment. The villains in Joshua, there are two key villains who are uh, buried under a pile of large stones in the book of Joshua. If God's verdict is clear through this narrative. Absalom deserves the curse that he receives here. He needed to be stopped. And David's sadness over Absalom shows a disconnect between David and God. David couldn't see the real threat. In fact, it takes the strong rebuke from Joab to identify what was going on. So that's the first point that we see from Joab's rebuke, that David need, needed to understand the very gospel was at risk. And it was a threat that he could not deal with lightly. But secondly, Joab's rebuke exposes that David had undervalued the gospel itself. That's not that David doesn't love God. It's not that David doesn't love God. The gospel and want to serve the promises that God has made to him. But in David's mind, the price tag is too steep. Does it have to cost this much? Does there have to be so much pain? Again, it's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus describes the cost of discipleship, a cost that makes your jaw drop. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you hear that and you say, well, okay, but how about not the disciple level? Maybe there's like the basic level Christianity when I can still love my mom and follow you. Please give me another option here. Can we still follow Christ and not experience pain? Not sacrifice? I know many of us. We're at that type of crossroads. We feel like we're on the cusp of being called to give up something to follow him. And we think, well, if we can just hedge our bets, if we can go halfway in, where it doesn't cost that much, won't it be better? Can't we get the best of both worlds? But the problem is, when we focus on the cross, when we focus on how much this is going to cost us, it's a sure sign that we're not understanding the value of the thing that we're sacrificing for. We've missed the treasure. You see, all of this is tied to the confidence that we have in the gospel. If we think little of the gospel, we will sacrifice little for it. If we think, well, you know, it doesn't really change my life much. It's just some record book in the sky. Then we're not going to really give what it takes. If we think that It will not have an impact in my life. Let the world around us crowd out its call. But for those who have tasted it, for those who desperately trust of it, for those who are convinced that there is no hope outside of the gospel, then we bear up our cross and we follow Jesus, not because the cross is enjoyable, but because the mission is worthy. Jesus is not calling us to straight-out hate our family or to abandon our possessions, but he's saying that the mission is so urgent that we should put everything at risk for its sake. Sacrifice and pain is not a higher Christianity. It's not the top level. What it is is simply grasping the truth and not letting anything in your life separate you from Christ. It's seeing the gospel clearly and, by comparison, judging everything else as lesser. When we don't do this, then those other things that we don't want to let go of, well, they in our life become the goal. Jesus no longer is the goal. Tim Keller has put it this way, if you say, I'll obey you, Jesus... If my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. Many of us are not called to give up house and family. But all of us, every single Christian, we all are called to be prepared to do so. To hold them loosely. We're called to submit our possessions, our family, our lives to God. Not because there's a price tag on it, but because it's worth it. It's worthy. David, you see, loses the sight of the glory of the gospel. What God is doing, what David is fighting for, he just doesn't see it as worth it. He sees a cost, don't get me wrong. In fact, in verse 33, he says, yes, I will pay a cost. I would have died instead of you, Absalom. But see, David doesn't get who he is. He is not his own person. He stands for something deeper. That's not the price of following Christ. That's the price of keeping Absalom. If David sacrificed his life, well, then all of Israel's hope would have vanished. He was the anointed. The only one who could say, my life for yours is David's heir, Jesus, who could stand in our place, who could take our death, but do it not only for us, but for all who look to him. David's desire to die for Absalom only furthered his willingness to sacrifice the kingdom of God for his son. Verse 6, Joab said, You have made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. David's action shows that he values Absalom out of accord with God's kingdom. But to compound the issue, David's grief wasn't just personal, it wasn't just his own. It had a deep effect on all who saw him. Verse five, Joab said, "You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines." You see what Joab's point is there, right? David, you're not the only one who sacrificed something in this battle. You're not the only one who lost something. Fathers and mothers have lost sons. Wives lost husbands. Children lost their fathers. They fought in this battle, and the victory was won, and the Antichrist was defeated. Except now they come back, and the king is inconsolable. And they must be thinking, well, did we actually win? Was it all for nothing? Did we give up those we loved for nothing? David is sending this message that the celebration is off, that it was a time of shame. But you know, celebrating a victory is more than just having a good time or celebrating that you're on the winning side. No, celebration is a way of making the sacrifice worth it. It honors the cost. Let's be honest, the cost of the kingdom of God is high. Anyone who follows Christ knows this. It would be a dangerous lie for me to stand up here and say that if you follow Christ, Your work is going to work out for you. You'll get a raise, a promotion. You'll feel satisfied in life. Your kids will be obedient and and say thank you and please every time you approach them. That your anxieties will disappear and that you'll be joyful all the time. No. Following Christ is going to be difficult, painful. The price tag at times will seem unbearable. But, oh, to be part of something worthy of that cost. To be part of something that's worth sacrificing for. We need more testimonies. We need to hear from you. Ways in which you have loss and pain for following Christ. Not because it shines a spotlight on you so that the rest of us can see that, yeah, it's worth it. As I face that same battle, it is worth it. Giving up those things that are hard. We're so prone to count the cost. We're so prone to look at our neighbors and seeing what they're not giving up. I'm reminded of the beginning to Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory of the Christian life where Christian hears the gospel for the first time and knows that he is headed to the celestial city. And he tries to plead and beg with his family to come with him because he loves them deeply. And when they refuse, he knows he is compelled to move anyway. And Bunyan writes at this start here, Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and his children, perceiving it, began to cry after him, To return. A Christian so moved by the love of his family needs to put his fingers in his ears so that he could run crying, life, life, eternal life. The cost was worthy. And one can argue that Joab is too callous here. He certainly was. Joab treats David's cost as trivial, and that is wrong. David is right to mourn here. That's not the problem. We need to grieve over the things that we lose. It is not comfortable when following Christ requires sacrifice. We, like Christians, we like Christian in that, in that allegory need to follow, even though it's through tears. But at the end, David does agree with Joab. David goes back to his seat at the gate. He resumes his role as king. You know, he was not like Eli. Eli saw the death of his sons, and he fell over backwards with the epitaph, the glory has departed. David hears the death of his son, And even though he mourns and weeps through those tears, he sees that the glory is still ahead of him, and he follows faithfully. Do we see the glory? Do we see that it's worth it? If you do, then we won't let anything hold us back. Let's pray.